Welcome to Writing It, a podcast by Ed Adams. The Triangle, episode 18. Dirty Money, Here's How to Clean It, a novel by Ed Adams. Clothes match. They decided they would need to make contact with Dylan, but they needed to do this in a way that would ensure Dylan was reasonable. They decided they would do this by intimidating him in some way, and that the most natural way would be to imply that if they were involved in the shadowy organisations themselves. We need to make ourselves look legitimate in some way, said Jake, otherwise we will be brushed off. So why don't we become part of a serious crime undercover unit, suggested Claire, knowing this may be a crazy idea. We could scare Dylan and get him to cooperate in some way. Duh, answered Jake, now you are crazy. But wait a minute, said Bigsy. Look at the three of us, a computer geek, a journalist, and a graphic designer. If we can't come up with a convincing comfort story, then nobody can. Claire agreed, and they started to create the background that they would need to persuade Dylan to cooperate. Jake was to write a couple of fake news stories, which he could then get worked into a copy of a magazine mock-up. Claire was to produce a relatively wide range of identity forgeries and a couple of unique photographic mock-ups. Biggs was asked to participate in some electronic engineering. The plan was evolving. They decided they would visit Dylan at his offices. One of them would pose as a member of the serious crime unit. This would be Jake. He could look serious, but was not threatening. If more heat was needed, then Bigsy was available as a background player. They would need to persuade Dylan that they already knew his game, and at the same time stop him from either telling the police or the underworld organisation of their involvement. The plan was to keep Dylan as the intermediary in all of this process, and potentially to do it in a way that meant Bigsy, Claire and Jake did not ever have direct contact with the Blue Flame organisation, with whom Dylan and previously Collins had been in discussion. Their plan was evolving. Jake was to impersonate a representative of Her Majesty's government, an illegal impersonation, of course. Jake would call Dylan and tell him that there was the need for an urgent meeting and that it should be off-site, away from Dylan's offices. He should say that this was a matter of grave importance and that Dylan should follow instructions and not to discuss anything with anyone else. In case he was challenged, he would be able to quote Fredrickson's name and could use the sad situation of Lucien's death as a way to illustrate that the situation was very real. Claire was creating suitable identity badges and paperwork for Jake, working out with Big Z how to make it look slightly used and battered. Claire knew how to do this by computer using Photoshop, but this needed to be real. Big Z's solution was simple. Give them to me. I'll put them in my back pocket for jeans for a few hours. Claire smiled. She knew this would probably work. Jake was working out how to look the part for when he got to meet Dylan. He decided that one of his more sober interview get-ups would probably be best. Jake knew as a journalist that playing the part when he met people often gave the best results. If he wanted to befriend them, he would try to match their style. If he wanted to be a formal journalist, he had a different clothing to match. The problem with it was his current lack of wardrobe following the encounters at his flat, which he had still not revisited. He would need to go shopping and acquire some suitable items. Bigsy was assembling a lapel camera like the one used in the best spy films. He carefully sewed a small module into the lapel of Jake's jacket. The thin wires would run through the lapel and into the pocket where they would connect to the recorder. It was almost undetectable and gave them a camera and recording capability for Jake's meeting. 
Jake would press a button at the start of the meeting and the camera and microphone would spring to life. Staged. Claire had called Dylan. It was like many busy people where a personal assistant screened him. Claire was half expecting this and made several calls within two hours. Finally, she added the magic name Fredrickson to the conversation. As if a curtain had lifted, she was suddenly through to Dylan. This had a dual benefit. They now also knew conclusively that Darren Collins' speculation had been correct. Dylan was involved, otherwise the reference to Fredrickson would not have worked so well. Claire now explained the need for a meeting with Dylan away from his office. She did not expect him to agree to this automatically, but when she laid on the pressure about the grave nature of the situation and the need for special care, Dylan eventually agreed. Claire had selected a quiet location for the meeting. It was a restaurant in Millbank, close to the River Thames, and part of a recently modernised hotel. The critical criteria were that it needed to be at ground level, that it needed to be bright, so that a hastily constructed video camera would work, and that it needed to be quiet enough to be able to record the conversation. The respectability of the venue would also reduce the likelihood of a no-show by Dylan. Its convenience as a short taxi ride from his office was also in their favour. As luck would have it, there was an extra melodrama because it was just around the corner from a seriously menacing government building which had cameras around their walls and police guards, and being on Millbank, it was less than ten minutes' walk to the Houses of Parliament. If anywhere was to be convincing for their story, then this was it. They had arranged to meet at one o'clock in the afternoon, and Claire had stressed that there would only be a five-minute period during which the meeting would be on. If Dylan was late, then the meeting was cancelled. This added further intrigue and a spurious air of professionalism. Jake and Claire knew this was all a bluff. Beasley took a room at the hotel, which was also the venue of the restaurant. They could use this as a short-term base camp. For the meeting itself, the plan was to use Jake as the member of the Serious Crime Unit and to have Bigsy on a nearby table in case anything untoward was going to happen. The preference was to keep Claire out of view and for Bigsy to only break cover in an emergency. Jake and Bigsy had taken their positions at the table. Claire had used the name John Hastings for Jake and all of the identity papers and other documents he carried used this name. The table was booked in this name. They all waited with bated breath for the due time and Claire had been sitting in the hotel lobby keeping an eye on incoming people. There was an advantage to the front of this hotel because the big plate glass windows gave an unrestricted view of people coming and going, and sure enough, at around 15 minutes before one o'clock, Dylan arrived. Claire was able to take several photographs of Dylan through the window of the hotel before he walked into the lobby. Claire pulled a large winter hooded coat over her head and made as if to walk out of the hotel. She noticed that Dylan had made his way to the men's room and once the coast was clear, she slipped to the elevators and off to the room booked by Big Z. At around two minutes to one o'clock, Dylan approached the restaurant, spoke to the maitre d' and was escorted to the table where Jake was sitting. It was right in the window of the hotel and faced onto a side walkway with a brick wall opposite. An occasional person was walking along the thoroughfare, mainly hotel guests cutting from the hotel's exit to the other side where there was a good view of the River Thames and the embankment. Jake stood as Dylan approached. Mr Dylan, he started. So good you could come along. He felt subconsciously as if he was speaking like a character from a John le Carré novel and hoped it was not too stilted. Hello, Mr Hastings, said Dylan. This had better be good. Good is a matter of opinion, continued Jake. Let me tell you what you were involved with. Jake then proceeded with the story they'd defined. 
Dylan listened intently while Jake took him through the key points. Firstly, Dylan had been under surveillance for at least six months. They knew everything about him and his operation. Jake handed over a couple of sheets of printout which were from the data provided by Darren Collins. It showed a few of Dylan's companies and some turnover data. Then he offered another sheet which showed a detailed breakdown of expenses from a sales visit which Dylan had made to Paris a month earlier. The data showed the individual sales receipt in the form usually used by an accountant. Suffice it to say, we have this information for everything you operate, continued Jake. Anyone with access to our account system could have stolen that, responded Dylan. It proves nothing. you better show me some ID before we go any further. And if I suspect anything, then I'll be calling the police in moments. As if to prove the point, he pulled out his mobile phone and placed it on the table. Across the room, Biggs's eyes nearly popped when he saw this. The phone was an unexpected bonus. He felt in the small key pocket in his jeans and retrieved the old SIM from Jake's old phone. Jake showed Dylan the identity papers produced by Claire. They did look good, but also a little dog-eared, which added a good sense of reality. Of course, it relied upon Dylan not knowing what a real identity look document would look like. OK, said Dylan, keep talking. Claire had been working in the hotel room. They had installed one of Biggs's printers and Claire's laptop computer. She was downloading the photographs of Dylan's arrival. She added a few words to the image and then, still wearing the hooded coat, stepped out of the room and made her way outside the hotel. She carried her laptop bag and camera and made her way to the riverside of the hotel, pausing as she passed the window where she could see that Jake and Dylan were engrossed in conversation. She was able to do two things here, including taking a photograph of the pair of them talking, all of which went undetected. Jake explained that Dylan was under surveillance, suspected of being already involved with the money laundering and would be tracked down if he joined the process via Fredrickson. His only chance was to cooperate with the authorities and in return he would be left alone. With the money he already had and the money he could make from the down payment from Fredrickson, he should be able to disappear and reinvent himself. In return, the UK authorities would start to dismantle the money laundering operation. Dylan would be able to stay disconnected from what happened and this would give him the highest chance of survival. Otherwise, he could continue with Fredrickson and know that he would be caught. He could tell Fredrickson what he knew, in which case Fredrickson would probably make him disappear, like Collins and Lucien. He could speak into the police directly, in which case Fredrickson would find out fast and then he would be in danger and Fredrickson would disappear. Frankly, his best bet was to cooperate. You talk a convincing story, said Dylan. This could all be bluff. How do I know you really have information and access? Let's think, said Jake. Firstly, I know about your company, to maximum detail. Secondly, I've shown you my identity information. Thirdly, I've shown you easily checkable facts about Darren Collins and Lucien Duchamp. Fourth, this venue, around the corner from a few other rather specialised establishments, is no co coincidence. And finally, take a look outside. Jake gestured over his shoulder. There was no one there, just the wall with a few tatty posters on it for various clubs and gigs. Then Dylan noticed them. Four yellow posters in a row. Ministry of Death, live on Thursday, it said, featuring DJ Dylan, and the black graphic overlay on the yellow poster was a picture of his face, his face a few minutes ago getting out of a taxi to go to the meeting with Jake. Clara had done a good job of making the posters. Excuse the theatricality, said Jake, but my point is you're an easy target at present. We want to make the situation go away. Only with your help can we guarantee your safety. I need a minute to think, said Dylan. Give me a moment. Go ahead, bluffed Jake, but don't try to go anywhere. 
Rest assured we have you under surveillance. We need to finish this conversation. Jake was used to interviews, sometimes needing a minute to think about an important revelation. When he got the exclusive on pop star girl Rachita's coming out, he had been through a situation just like this. Leave the phone here, he added, and don't go making any public calls either. Dylan walked away. He needed a few moments to consider his options. He could run, call the police, or just go back to Jake. At the moment, that did seem like the best option. He walked outside the lobby of the hotel to the foyer where he lit a cigarette, a camel. Bigsy was delighted. He cleaned out Jake's SIM after he'd removed it from the phone and now replaced it with the one in Dylan's phone with Jake's. The main reason was to get Dylan's SIM so they could check through the numbers. As Dylan walked out of the restaurant, Bigsy swung past Jake's table, lifted the phone and sat again at his own. A minute later, he removed, he repeated the manoeuvre and then walked towards the exit from the restaurant where he could see Dylan smoking. He paused and noticed Dylan fi finishing the cigarette and turned to come back into the hotel. A good sign, thought Bigsy. Moments later, they were both seated again. OK, said Dylan, I'll cooperate. What do you want me to do? It's simple, replied Jake. You just need to do what Fredrickson asks, but at some point you will need to supply some information to us. Jake was assuming that Fredrickson's approach to Dylan would be very similar to the way he had recruited Darren Collins. There had been a sizable down payment to Collins when he had started the operation, and Jake had assumed that it would be the same for Dylan. What information? asked Dylan. Let me advise you, when you are asked to participate in this, you should ask for two things. One is a 24 to 48 hour review period for the paperwork, and the other is a down payment of 30% of the initial fee. Fredrickson will agree to the first and may negotiate on the second. Almost certainly he will have a number of treasury bills to pay you the down payment, and he would probably be surprised if you didn't ask for something like this. Dylan almost smiled. He had already told Fredrickson he wanted 50% of the initial freeze up front, and the two of them had haggled this to 30%. That was 1.3 million euros, or in dollars it was close to 1.5 million. That's fine, said Dylan. What else? You will give both documents to us, continued Jake. We only need them for 48 hours, but we will need to cross-check them for DNA, as well as other clues as to origination. You will get them both back. If there are any legal documents requiring amendment, we will tell you. The money represented by the Treasury Bill will also remain yours. Dylan was unhappy about parting from the contract, and even more so from the money. Look, said Jake, if you cooperate now, you will get all of the money and be forever decoupled from this whole situation. Any other course of action will leave you exposed and under risk. We don't want the money. It's better for us when you disappear and the money disappears with you. Her Majesty's government cannot be caught up in money theft. Dylan relaxed slightly at this final thought. If Jake was who he said he was, this is probably his best and safest bet. He was already in this too deep, and the credential from Jake seemed genuine. All right, said Dylan, I'll go along with this, but I suspect if there's anything wrong, I will track you down and take you down. He continued. Everything will be all right if you follow these instructions, continued Jake. They had both ordered Caesar salads and both had pushed them around the plate during the conversation. The meal was an accessory to the main point of the meeting, but it was now clearly time to move on. Do you agree to this? asked Jake, because if, if so, then we can use the papers to trace the route to Fredrickson and even further back. You will still have been paid the two sums for starting up in treasury bills and can lose yourself. 
our government will be creating so much heat for Fredrickson and his accomplices that you will not need to worry about them again, and you will have four million euros for your trouble. I think this is considerably better than being killed or put into prison, don't you? Dylan stood to leave. You give me little choice in this matter, he continued. I do agree to follow these instructions, but please understand that I have a great sense of self-preservation. Frankly, even from the start, this proposition seemed too good to be true, so I'm not surprised when it comes like this. They looked one another in the eye and shook hands. Jake decided that Dylan seemed surprisingly likeable, and he wondered how he had first got mixed up in this situation. As Dylan left, Jake signalled to their waitress, and they started to pay the bill. Dylan was good for his word to Jake and when he had visited Fredrickson the first time, the whole reason for the legal delays and the requirement for the down payment had gone precisely in the way that Jake and Dylan had discussed. Less than 15 minutes after the first meeting with Fredrickson in the Foreign and Commonwealth Club, in a nearby Pratamanger sandwich bar in Trafalgar Square, the contract and the treasury bills had been handed over to Jake. Jake had walked out of the sandwich bar and climbed straight into a taxi. Take me to Cannon Street, he'd asked. Cannon Street on the edge of the area of central London known as Bank. The area where all of the world's main banks had offices. Jake was about to pay one of them a visit.